0: The word mashber, mashber, which means sometimes in modern Hebrew a crisis, but it's also, of course, mashber. It means in Hebrew the birthing store. And sometimes when people are having a religious crisis, what they're really doing is they're birthing something new. Something's going on with them, and the Judaism they grew up with just doesn't fit anymore. It doesn't work, and they need to create a new Judaism. In fact, that was the way Rav Cook looked at a lot of chiloniut. The chiloniut seen the cracks in our Judaism. And it actually was a process of breaking and remaking. And therefore, I think these terms of the derech, sometimes even dati, datlash, you know, they're not so useful.
1: I'm Scott Kahn, and this is the Orthodox Conundrum. This is the Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeehouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. There's a phenomenon in the Orthodox world which is called by various names, though most commonly, oft or O.T.D. and datlash, short for le she'avar, that is, formerly religious. For a community which prides itself on continuity and on passing the tradition from one generation to the next, the idea that people leave Orthodoxy is simultaneously painful and threatening. Why did he or she leave? What didn't work? Why don't they see what we see? Or perhaps, if we're being truly honest with ourselves, what do they see that we may be missing? And when the people who reject an Orthodox way of life are members of our own families, the difficulties are compounded. These questions matter a lot, and that's why I was so anticipating my conversation with Rabbi Alex Israel. And despite my high expectations, he was even better than I had hoped. Rabbi Israel has given a lot of thought to this issue, and his insights are humane, generous, and rooted in Torah. We spoke about whether the terms OTD and Dat Lash, and even Dati, religious, are helpful or misleading, whether the phenomenon of people moving away from orthodoxy is becoming more common, how it may be different in Israel and in the United States, whether we should actively try to bring those who have left orthodoxy back into the orthodox fold, if an emphasis on dogma is partially to blame, how parents should navigate having a child who is less religious than they are, what we can learn from those who leave orthodoxy, and more. I'm sure you'll find this as thought-provoking as I did, and we'll get to that conversation momentarily. First, let me remind you to share this podcast, rate The Orthodox Conundrum, and write a review on Apple Podcasts, and let us know what you think on The Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook. Check out jewishcoffeehouse.com for The Orthodox Conundrum and other great podcasts, and remember to subscribe to them on your favorite podcast provider. We also have started The Orthodox Conundrum YouTube channel, and this episode will be available there as well. The Orthodox Conundrum is looking for sponsors, either to promote your business or organization, or in someone's honor or memory. If you want to reach thousands of listeners every single week, write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com. Thanks to all of our Patreon subscribers who have access to bonus Jewish Coffeehouse podcasts, merch, and more. You should join our Patreon team, too. The link is in the description of this podcast. Finally, if you don't have a podcast, you're missing out on the best new way to reach hundreds and thousands of engaged listeners. But if you want to start a podcast, you need to make sure that it's really good, both in terms of content and production values, so that you will be noticed among all the other podcasting options out there. If you have opinions that you want to share with a large group of people or a growing business that's looking for a great new marketing tool or an organization that's looking to reach hundreds and thousands of captivated listeners, you should have a podcast and one that is of the highest quality and we can help you make that happen. Contact me at Scott at com or go to JCHPodcast.com to learn how we can help you make a high quality, effective and entertaining podcast. Rabbi Alex Israel is a popular teacher at Yeshivat Eretz Hatzvi and Midrash Lindenbaum, and an international lecturer and educational consultant. He has a large following on Facebook and records a daily Tanakh podcast following the 929 Tanakh schedule. Born and raised in the UK, Rabbi Israel made Aliyah in 1991 to Yeshivat Zion, where he received smicha from the Israeli chief rabbinate. He holds degrees from the London School of Economics, the London Institute of Education, and Bar-Ilan University. His books, One King's Torn in Two, and Two Kings in a Whirlwind, have been received with great acclaim. His writings may be found at www.alexisrael.org. Rabbi Alex Israel, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast.
0: Pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me.
1: I'm looking forward to our conversation today about what's commonly known by two basic terms, either dat lash, dati l'sha'avar, which means formerly religious, or OTD, off the derech, no longer on the religious path. My first question for you today relates to the use of these terms themselves, how appropriate they are, because that implies a sort of binary way of understanding how Jews fit on that religious spectrum, or it denies the possibility of a spectrum. Because the idea of calling people either religious or not religious, I think, is not necessarily fair. There are plenty of Torah-observant people who don't believe in God, for example. There are plenty of people who believe in God and have tremendous emuna and bitachon, but aren't necessarily Torah observant. There are people who keep ritual, but aren't careful about the ben adam la mitzvot, mitzvot interpersonally. There are other people who are scrupulous about that, but don't care about ritual and everything in between. I just think that calling people this particular term, maybe even calling people T for that matter, really is creating categories that are not particularly helpful. And I'd like to know what you think about that.
0: So you've definitely hit home with that particular point. I also don't really like the term Dati. Uh, I, I generally call myself Shomer Mitzvot. And I have seen the response to that. I have a, a Chiloni friend who I work with. He's a really wonderful guy and dedicated most of his life to the security of Medina Israel. And he says to me, he doesn't call himself Chiloni. He says to me, Ani shomer rov ha-mitzvot. I keep most of the Mitzvot you know, he says, mm-hmm. I keep all the I don't work on Shabbat, I live in Ereti, Israel, and therefore I, I couldn't agree with you more um, and sometimes, you know, it, these labels, they become sort of like, they're like the way we dress, right? Our kids actually sometimes don't like these things because kids are looking for something really genuine and the, they sometimes see these religious labels as, as really phony. You know, I'll, I'll tell you something about this about this particular thing I once I went to visit some students at uh, Binghamton University. I was going to give some shirim. And then when I got to Binghamton, there were two students waiting for me. I had taught them in a men's shiva here in Israel where I teach. Now, one was short and one was tall. And the short one, you know, looked like just like he did in shiva, And the tall one, he, he wasn't really wearing a kippah, but he was very tall and I'm not so tall. So I couldn't tell. Anyway, I started talking to them. I said to him, you know, how are you doing? And he says to me, well, Rabbi, now remember, this guy was there to meet me. He, he really wanted to see me. And he says, hey, Rabbi, he says, well, I'm off the derech." And I said to him, what do you mean off the derech?" He goes, yeah, I'm not observant anymore. So I said, well, like, for example, what do you do on Shabbat? So he says, well, Friday night I go to Chabad. He said, I don't dub and but I go to Chabad. And then it turns out in the conversation that he's still got a chavruta from yeshiva. And that he says he really only hangs out with Orthodox Jews. <laughs> I turned around to him and I said, listen, my friend, you are not off the derech. You are on the derech. You are on your derech. <laughs> and, and I said to him something that, uh, you know, I've heard many times, which is that, you know, the word mashber, mashber, which means sometimes in modern Hebrew, a crisis. But it's also, of course, mashber, it means in Hebrew, the birthing store. And sometimes when people are having a religious crisis, what they're really doing is they're birthing something new something's going on with them, and the Judaism they grew up with just doesn't fit anymore. It doesn't work. And they need to create a new Judaism. In fact, that was the way Rav Kook looked at a lot of Chiloniut. The Chiloniut had seen the cracks in our Judaism, and it actually was a process of breaking and remaking. And therefore, I think these terms, of the Derech, sometimes even dati, dat you know, they're not so useful.
1: What you said about off the derech, by the way, I wanted to say I really appreciate that. The concept of you're on your derech, even the phrase off the derech as if there is one way, is by itself a violation of the concept of 70 facets of the Torah, Shavim Panim la Torah, Rabbi Israel, let me just mention one minor story which brought this home to me. I remember back 20-something years ago when I was learning in Yeshiva and Yerushalayim, I took a bus home on Erev Shabbat, and I got on bus and I was wearing my, my from clothes, my white shirt, my dark pants. And then a woman sat down right next to me dressed very not Sanua. And as the bus started moving, I took out my Jerusalem post and she took out her Talim. And the question is, who's really the Dati one or the Off the Derrick one here? And the answer is it depends on what you're looking at. So I definitely appreciate what you just said.
0: I, I totally agree with you. And I've had similar sto- similar episodes where somebody who I've assumed is irreligious turns out to be to tell me stories which I, I, I should only be zoche You know, and just the fact that, you know, you know, they sometimes say that uh, that person is wearing a kipash kufa, wearing a see-through kipa. <laughs> uh, you just can't see it, but they're still wearing one. So uh, it's interesting how the, the so I want to relate a little bit to this term datalash. You know, I think maybe the phrase was coined because people used to always talk about called, um, now let me explain a little bit for our listeners uh, how that came about. You know, we all know the phrase choser b'tshuva that somebody's bal choser b'tshuva, where we mean repentance that a person has decided to repent from their evil ways. But you know, the Israelis heard this and they heard choser b'tshuva that you've come back with all the questions because a tshuva like sheilot and shuvot questions and answers that they 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 identified the idea that. Religious people have all the answers. So when somebody decided to abandon religion, they called it choser b'sheila, right? That you've, you know, g- given now you now you've got questions. So first of all, again, that binary is also not a particularly good one. Uh, I think people have who have who have left uh, a life of religious observance didn't find that that choser b'sheila label accurately described them. And when they wanted to self-identify, they couldn't describe themselves as chiloni. You know, they are a se- but subgroup, right? There's always a joke about how all the datlashim uh, want their children to be also datlashim, but their children can't be. <laughs> they know they know how to function in a shul. They have all these religious associations. Their Hebrew has all sorts of Talmudic... They, they're not Chilonim. They're not Chazer B'She'ilah, because they didn't leave because they had questions, and therefore I think people have looked for a different definition. But a third definition has come in, uh, which is talk, spoken about more and more, and that is the new phrase the Retzef hadati," the religious spectrum." And I think this works in one of two ways. And by the way, there was a show a few years ago, I think maybe even five years ago, on Israeli TV, several episodes about the retsef Hadati, that the Dati the, the, the world was opening up. So this works in one of two ways. You know, some people still identify with the Dati world, but they don't keep everything. They don't dress, a woman who doesn't dress sanua, a, a guy who texts on Shabbat, somebody who lives with their boyfriend or girlfriend. Ironically, I, I remember working, the first time I'd, I found this, I worked with somebody and her daughter, you wouldn't have been able to tell from the way she dressed that she was dati, datia. She texts on Shabbat, she lived with her boyfriend, she still considers herself to be datia. Now that also shows that Dati is sort of like a sociological label. Um, so there seems to be a wide, broad range of a broad wage of observance uh, in the the Dati Le'Umi world, for sure. And that's embraced by this phrase. But there's something even deeper than that, which maybe I'll relate to. And that is the idea of a retzef, almost the idea of a spectrum, almost as a, what should I say, expression of of a realistic expression. There's a a very, very interesting uh, rabbi, Rav Ido Pechter. I don't know if you've come across him. He wrote a book called Yehadut Alaretzef, and it's about the notion of halacha, and he talks about the idea that this binary of observant and non-observant is, it's just not relevant. Like you said, you sit next to somebody who isn't dressed religious. She, you know, says to him, uh, Masortiim, the 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 traditional Sephardi community, who frequently, you know, very bit about nida, very bit about hadlakat they they'll kiss the hand of the rabbi and then they'll go to shu- to go to football on Shabbos afternoon. There is an incredible binary, people who really want religion in their life, and, and they value religion, and they're committed to religious things, and yet they aren't what we would, they don't go through the threshold, and suddenly you realise that there really is, there isn't a binary, there's a there's a spectrum, and that includes institutions have embraced this place, so you've got machinots which are religious secular mechinot, like Ein Prat, like Beit Yisrael in Gilor, like Natur in the Golan, you've got Rut Calderon. Uh, An Alma and the Chiloni Yeshiva. I, I heard somebody from the Chiloni Yeshiva from Bina speak recently and he said, I'm not Chiloni. I'm religious, but I just don't like that religion of the Datiim. <laughs> <laughs> and if you want to read more about this, you can read uh, Micha Goodman's book. He's written a book called Chazara La Shuvah. I think it's been translated. I don't remember the English translation, the, the, the English name, but he establishes on the one hand what he calls the orthodoxim, right? <laughs> Who are reject personal autonomy. On the other hand, the extreme secular Zionists who have rejected, said, we want the new Ivri Jew. But he says there are a lot of people who want their Judaism. They just don't want it in a way in which it is prescribed or in which it is controlling. But they really want a relationship and they want to create their Zionism and they want to create their identity around this Judaism. So, you know, just out of this term, Dat you know, there are all sorts of other definitions. And, and this takes us into a whole sociological study not only of the Dati Lomik community, but of a lot of Israeli society. It's a big, big
1: topic. I wonder if that concept you mentioned of Rezaf HaDati, that religious spectrum, also takes place even on an individual level. What I mean by that is that all of us at different times of our lives, at different moments, maybe even in the day, are at different points on that spectrum. When I'm working on my business, I'm not necessarily in the same place, even though I like to think that I'm always Dati and I'm always a we and I hope I am. But there are certain intense moments when you're davening on Yom Kippur, that might be different than when you're playing baseball or working on your job. And along with that, sometimes that concept of vretzav hatati might make some people think, well, we are on one end of that spectrum, therefore we have arrived. The other people are on a road more or less getting closer or further away from us. And I think it's important that people on that religious spectrum who consider themselves religious, avoid the arrogance of saying, well, we're the ones who've made it, and they're the ones who are on the road towards what we're trying to do. It could be, back to that idea of a spectrum, there are different ways that people are reaching God. I'm not suggesting that people shouldn't be Torah Jews, but I also want to avoid judgmentalism.
0: You know, it's interesting, in the United States, there is, you know, everything was always described denominationally, orthodox, conservative reform. And if I'm not mistaken, in the last Pew study, they found that, first of all, you know, the unaffiliated are the largest group, but they found that there's a whole new group who are um, not orthodox, but their most powerful Jewish experiences, or they have come through Chabad. Now, the interesting thing is they're not going to be observant, but their touches with Judaism, whether it was at college or wherever they're living, have been through Chabad, which is, you know, has its own standards and yet is absolutely non-judgmental. And allows everybody to come in, but Asher share Husham. And, you know, so, so this red seph, this spectrum is, is is a real thing. And I'll say some more than that. You said to, at different moments of time, I'm finding it really interesting. I'm in my 50s, and I'm finding it interesting to watch some of my friends make all sorts of adjustments in their religious standards. Uh, sometimes the women who covered their hair, who have stopped, or the other way around. Um, Men who are now, you know, maybe finished with the child raising years and now are spending more time in Limud Torah and getting into Hasidut and all sorts of. So, you know, this idea that we, I'm religious, <laughs> as if it's like this static, I'm in the freezer, I'm static, I'm, <laughs> we're, we're, we're living, breathing human beings and we we, our experiences in life often rock us, shake us up and uh, we, our experiences, so yeah. We're on the move.
1: Let me ask you about some of the factors that cause people to move along that spectrum. Again, without trying to use the terms dat lash or t, there are people who are more observant and less observant of Torah Judaism. There are 613 mitzvot, which we are, as Torah Jews, expected to keep. It's an ol mitzvot, an obligation, a yoke. So, Rabbi Israel, what are some of the factors that you see that cause people to become less observant or, to put it more Stark, perhaps, to leave Torah Judaism. And along with that, let me also ask you do you think that this is becoming more common?
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. So maybe I'll ask, I'll, I'll just say recently I was I went to a visit to the United States and I stayed with some friends who, uh, because of COVID 19 and everything, had, hadn't been to Israel for a long time and they'd just been back from a two week trip in Israel. So I said to them, You spent two weeks in Israel. What did you notice? And uh, one of the things that was there, leaders in the modern Orthodox world, you know, you couldn't get more salt of the earth, wonderful pillars of modern Orthodoxy in, in the United States than them. And uh, they said, well, you know, it's really interesting. They said here in the United States, amongst our friends, there's almost no family where we don't have a child, one child in a family or more than one who is becoming more right wing, putting on a black keeper, or becoming a bit more Haredi. And when we go to Israel, we noticed that every one of our friends has at least one child who is less observant. And I found that fascinating, right? And I can I can I can explain it to a certain degree. But I, you, when you say, is it more is it more pronounced? You know, it's that's a that's a really interesting thing that they noticed that so many of the people they encountered have a child who's sort of on a journey in some way. You ask like, what what causes it? So obviously, you can have Extreme situations, you can have trauma, religious crisis. I remember when there was that show, Surugim, they had an episode about somebody who had you know, been um, evacuated or, or thrown out of Gush Katif and, and it threw them into a religious crisis or people who have a touch with terrorism. So obviously there are traumatic situations, situations of abuse and what have you. But I don't think that's, I hope that's not the majority. Let me mention a few things. First of all, I'll say this. Uh, for some people, I think maybe Judaism just isn't meaningful enough. You know, I sometimes look at the kids in my area. I live in Gush Etzion, and I see how so many of them are really passionate about serving in the army. But uh, maybe their passion for serving the army—they look at that and they say, "Okay, I get what the army gives me, but but what is going to Mincha give me?" And 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 that's a real contribution. But is Mincha a real contribution, right? Um, now, one aspect might be that our sometimes we judge Judaism too narrowly. And what do you I mean like, like this? We just read last week, Parashat Mishpatim. Mishpatim encompasses everything from, you know, laws of looking after one another to to the health system, to employment, to welfare. In, in other words, our Judaism should be uh, which covers unemployment and zahal. Uh, and the foreign ministry, which is Kiddush Hashem in international relations, and hospitals, for Europei, and Chesed, the welfare ministry. But where do we always associate Judaism? Shul. With Shul, with Limud Torah, with Sniut, with Lashon Hara. Actually, that's not what HaKadosh Baruch Hu intended when he spoke about the Tariyag Mitzvahs. <laughs> One of the point is, which actually put Judaism in Misrad Datot, the religious ministry and the education ministry, instead of the broad gamut. And then People start saying, "Well, I don't relate so much to Judaism, but maybe we've described Judaism too narrowly." And in fact, that's exactly something that uh, Rav Cook spoke about when he spoke about that Judaism really encompasses everything. And in almost like a Hasidic view, he saw just like Hasidut saw sparks of God everywhere, which needed to somehow be raised. He he saw, for example, his letter to Betzalel, where he saw. Arts as a part of a nation coming back to health, exercise, the military, agriculture, as as a sign of this. One of the thinkers who spoke about this very strongly is Ahad Ha'am, where Ahad Ha'am, he saw Herzlian Zionism and said, well, you're trying to solve anti-Semitism, but that doesn't interest us Jews from Poland and Russia. We see Judaism as too narrow. Judaism isn't about whether you put your right shoe on first or your left shoe on first the milk falling into the meat, open your Tanakh. It's about an army, it's about an economy, it's about a national infrastructure, it's about government, it's about ethics. So I think that might be one thing, that Judaism doesn't have the meaning we want in our world. And let me now give the flip side of that, which is I think some kids actually at the secular world, and they say, you know what, the secular world is really addressing the values we need. Environmentalism, inclusivism, Feminism, LGBT, um, and they look at the religious world on a sociological basis, especially if they're coming from liberal backgrounds, they don't always like it, right? So, for example, I, I know for, if I take my yeshuv, I live in Alon I think there are many kids who have become irreligious, there are not many who have become Haredi. Why aren't they becoming Haredi? Why aren't they all over the show? And the answer is because the Haredi identity for them is, an, is a is, is a deeply unethical one, I'm afraid to say. They don't serve in the army. They feel they don't contribute to the economy. And that is such an unappealing option that even if the religious mode of Haredi thinking might appeal to them, they're not going to join the Haredi community. So there's a sense of looking at the religious establishment as actually being, usually we say, Torah is where the ethics are. The Chilonim, that's the empty wagon. But actually, they sometimes look at the chiloni niwag and say, "Look, they serve in the army. They're contributing to the economy. They believe in equality and inclusivism. And look at the look at the religious community. And the religious community frequently, at least the way it's portrayed by the media, um, is is a turnoff. But I'll mention a couple of other things.
1: Hey, Rabbi Israel, can I just ask you something before we get there? Because you've said a lot that I really want to make sure I grab onto. Can Please. I just go back to a point you mentioned? a couple of minutes ago about the difference between Chutzlaritz, or at least the United States in this person you visited's view, and Israel, where he said in his community, everyone has at least one child who becomes more religious or more Haredi or more right-wing, whereas in Israel it's the opposite. To what do you personally attribute that? Do you have any answer to that? Well,
0: well, I will say this. In the modern Orthodox community in America, uh, I, think, I think things are tough. You know, even when we grew up, we watch TV. You could actually watch TV. There wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't excessive violence. There wasn't excessive swearing. There wasn't excessive sex. Golda Meir didn't allow the Beatles to come in Israel because she considered them to be decadent. I mean, you know, we're not talking about Rihanna or, or I don't know, whoever else there is. You know, secular. They wore got, suits. <laughs> secular culture has got well in the early days, at any rate. Um, secular culture has secular culture has got more decadent the 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 secular campus has become a, a hotbed of anti-semitism and anti-israel feeling liberal values in the attack on you know maybe even gender the the whole woke or, or whatever you might call it the the anti-colonialist a lot of students don't necessarily they look at the liberal world and they don't say wait this is a this is an upstanding world of values they say well this is degenerate this is leading in a in a, in a This is a breakdown of society. And therefore, where do they say they say, well, modern orthodoxy, what the modern world has got so much to offer. And they look at the Haredi world where remember the Haredi world in America, people do work. People, you know, have money so you can live on a good standard of living and you can feel that things are more more religiously intense. And therefore, on the whole gamut of schools, we we, you do see that now here in Israel, you might say the opposite happens. We, we first of all, preach to our kids that they should be together with the Chilonim because they are our brothers. We send our kids to the army where maybe they will often meet with, you know, colleagues who they feel are just as principled and idealistic as they. If you become non-observant in Israel, you will still speak Hebrew. You will still likely marry... A, a Jew, you will still know when it's Shabbat. You'll even feel Shabbat in the air. You'll know when the Chagim are. You will have a lot of your Judaism in Israel. And you're, you, you don't live at a great distance from your So You can come back for Shabbat or you can... So in other words, it's still very accessible to you. So it's, re- it's, it's a really interesting uh, dynamic here where with sometimes religious community here in Israel being more of a turnoff. And in America, with a situation of sort of like feeling that maybe, you know, the wider world is more threatening.
1: And I would certainly add something not to get too much into politics, but I've said for a long time that the mixture of religion and politics in Israel is the worst thing that could possibly happen to Torah and to Torah's reputation and frankly, to God's reputation. I can't imagine that that's not a factor as well in the United States the more right-wing communities are not involved in politics, or at least not in the way that it is in Israel. Obviously, there are Haredi Jews involved in politics, and there are Haredi Jews who are very vocal about their political opinions, and it could be that Haredi Judaism in the United States is becoming far more political than it was in the past. Nevertheless, it has not reached the level that it is in Israel where there actually are orthodox political parties that represent that community in government. And therefore those turnoffs aren't there, whereas in Israel, I'm sure that has to be part of it where they look at religious political parties and whatever one thinks about them, it changes the nature of how one thinks about religion.
0: I, I I'll tell you something that somebody quoted to me that their child said to them, and please don't I know this is stereotyping and I know we're not allowed to do such things, but this is a direct quote. They their child turned around to them and said, How do you expect me to have religious role models when and they were referring to to the political parties when Sionutatit are all racist and misogynists, when shas are all corrupt, and when Yahadutatora are all parasites. Now I know that's terrible. It's terrible, but what they were really saying was these three, first of all, three beautiful words, sha's, all words that I relate to, but now have become, as you said, politicized, and their worst representatives, right? Have have sort of like given a bad name to the type of Judaism that they uh, ascribe to. And therefore, you can understand people saying, well, if the public faces of these things, I want to run the other way.
1: And let me ask you another question. I know I interrupted you, so I want to let you get back. But I have one more question based on what you said about the immersion in Judaism that we have, which is beyond the narrow assumptions of what religiosity is all about. It's not just about going to Mincha, but it's about... You know, having a b'tuach lumi, having national insurance, and taking care of the poor, and all the other aspects that we see in the wider Israeli world, religious and what's called not religious. Do you think? And the reason I'm asking this is because in a recent episode with Rabbi Pesach Sommer about religious crisis, he said, and I agree with this. Sometimes in the religious world, we expect that through Torah, a person reaches God, and therefore, if there's something about Torah or maybe Torah's representatives that somebody doesn't like, they don't necessarily. Move on to see God. Do you think that it might be important to reverse that order at times for some people to allow people to say, look for God? There's God in Judaism, even if you personally don't see it in observance of the Torah, come the other direction. In fact, I'll mention as well, Rabbi Israel, that on my Facebook group about a month ago it was Rabbi Arya Kaplan's at Saul's York site, and I put up a quote that was in a book of his, where effectively he suggested that people should look for the God of their ancestors. But if they can't find the God of their ancestors, if the God of Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov has no meaning to them, keep looking. Start all over. Forget everything you know about God and try and see what are the deepest values, the things that really, really matter to you, and look for God there. It might mean forgetting everything you know, even if you're a Torah Jew, but you'll find something. And that thing you find is an aspect of the infinite God that is part of Judaism. Do you think that this is something that should be re-emphasized or is this something which is a non-starter for you?
0: I think it's very much a starter for me. I think it's. I think I would very much, but well, I don't think that's the solution here. But I, I would say that, let's say relating to a child who has for whatever reason, uh, or an adult, young adult who's decided to abandon observance, I, I don't think everything's lost. You know, I was once talking to a friend about somebody who was religious and he said, wait, Avram Avinu what was his central value that Hashem told him is the derech Hashem? Well, it is sedek umishpat, dakah Um and this person is really, really um, a warrior for social justice, right? Maybe he's more from than all of us, <laughs> and I think that's a that's a very, very deep comment, right? And I think so. so maybe I'll 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 even mention something in this regard. You know, we live in a world, especially a postmodernism, postmodernist world, where the classic, one of postmodernism's claims is the classic notion of truth as sort of there isn't a truth out there. And everything is a question of, of narratives. Now, this throws the emphasis of Judaism, first of all, into number one, the emphasis of identity, into meaning, what's meaningful to me. And number two, into the self. I'm not looking for truth out there. I'm looking for truth here. I'll even talk about my generation of uh, uh, when we discovered halachic Judaism. Our parents were sort of from and belonged to modern Orthodox communities. But then we discovered the Shulchan Aruch. And this was a big thing because now we had an outside standard. And me and my contemporaries all started adopting stricter halachic lines because we saw a Judaism over there. And we wanted to be true to that truth. This generation, this generation of growing up today. They're not looking for a Judaism over there. They're saying Judaism. How do you relate to me, right? I'm at the center. What's my What's the meaning? What's they're relating? The, the most important word is authenticity. To be genuine. And now, if Judaism doesn't match me, there, there's a mismatch. Don't ask how I can come closer to Judaism. Ask how Judaism can come closer to me. Now, this explains, for example, why even in the, all the religious Zionist yeshivas, has is coming because Chassidut brings a sense of the, 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 the religious into every moment and every small detail of our Judaism because we're looking for something, things to have meaning. We're looking for more con- inner connection. Right. And I think that's that's a very powerful, powerful shift, generational shift. And maybe that relates to the fact that people can't just take a package of the Shulchan Aruch and buy into it. And therefore, maybe we need to work harder as educators, as parents. Maybe we need to be more open to allow people to pursue that meaning in all sorts of different avenues within life. And maybe we allow people to d- sort of discover that meaning within their Judaism and, and to value it even when they find it
1: outside their Judaism. You know, just on that one point, I know that Rav Shagar points out in his discussion, his most primary discussion, la'ayin, it's a discussion about living next to nothingness, about postmodernism. He says that the Kabbalistic Sphira of Tif Eret sphira that is associated with balance. It's also the sphira associated with truth. Balance and truth shouldn't be the same thing, trying to figure out which value takes precedence at any given time. He points out that truth in the world now, based on the Kabbalistic idea, does work well with the way postmodernists think, is not an absolute. It's a balance of opposites. And he points out as well that truth is a lower value in the Whole of values in the Kabbalistic universe than where, so to speak, God exists above in the level of Ayn, of what's called the nothingness with a capital N. Anyway, but that's I think along those same lines in terms of how people think. I'll let you get back to what you were talking about before before I so rudely interrupted you.
0: No, th- this is great. I'll you know I'll just make wait, one last point, which I think will might be interesting to our listeners. I find it fascinating, and I think this is this acceptance the world we're in with its acceptance of difference of diversity. Um, I find also reflective in, in the life of my kids. You know, my kids are very accepting of any friends who are LGBT. They're very accepting of any of their friends who are not Shomer Shabbat. Um, there's a total, you know, happiness and acceptance of different identities living side by side. And whereas sometimes we wanted to be in a khaburah of people very much like us, I think part of this generation, this embracing of diversity, Now uh, you could say there's something very beautiful about this. My interest in, in Dati'im and Chilonim came for me very, very strongly uh, during the, year, the Oslo years. And the minute that Sohar, the rabbinic bridge, the window between Dati'im and Chilonim was set up, immediately after Retzach Rabin, after the Rabin assassination, it was set up in 1996. I was at their founding conference and I've been associated with them ever since because I, I felt this very, very urgent need to, to, to bring this bridge over Am Israel. And maybe these different identities all sitting in some sort of muddle um, is is there's something powerful about it. There's a show on 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 TV. Well, I don't watch it on TV. I watch it online. But it's uh, Kana Hadisrei, the main Israeli broadcasting. And it's called She'ila Shuva. I don't know if you've ever seen it. What they put together, it's a half an hour show or a 25 minute show. And they put together two people, one who, who has left religion and one who's become religious. And they sit them together for a, for a conversation. Now, they match people up beautifully. So, for example, they had once where a veteran of the 73 war who had lost his religion in the war and another one who had found his religion in the war. Or they had two women, one who had been a a dancer and she'd been datiya she'd been religious. And because she was a dancer, she decided she had to become secular because she couldn't express it. And then there was a secular woman who had been a dancer, who became Haredi. She became a Brest lover, And but she realized as a religious woman, a Haredi woman, she couldn't do without dance. And she set up the first um, Haredi dance troupe or dance school. And they have them talking a conversation. And they've got so much in common and so much a difference. And some of them, there's a little bit of tension. And at others of them, there's just a, a meeting of minds and an embrace. And, you know, this notion of just being able to live with this difference. And in certain ways, you know, some, some of my kids, it's just not a big deal. They're like that. We're like this.
1: Sababa, You know, that really leads me to the next question I wanted to ask, which is about the place of, for lack of a better term, Kiruv, when it comes to people who've left orthodoxy or who are along that religious spectrum. Do you think there is a place for religious Jews to actively try to bring back people who would term themselves as dat lash, formerly religious? Because on the one hand, this idea of being non-judgmental, being pluralistic, saying that we accept people as they are, is a wonderful thing. On the other hand, Torah Jews believe that Torah Judaism is the way that God wants us to be. And to say, therefore, I'm going to let them be however they want to be without even trying to convince them of the rightness of Torah for, I'm not sure if that's the right term, but the, the reality of Torah as the way that Jews should live, maybe that would be wrong not to. So what would you think about that?
0: Yeah, um, it's it's really interesting. There's a wonderful book by Rav Eli Ofran, uh, it's called something like hadora kaddash, for the challenges of the new generation. I really recommend it for any educator because he puts together 10 issues, which are, you know, at the forefront of the changing world of this generation. And he actually says, first of all, he, he points out very interestingly, he says that the statistics show that 30 to 40 percent of the me world, certainly in their 20s, might leave religion, 30 percent. He said, first of all, many of them may come back at a later stage. But he says, second of all, that means that if you have a tension between which means giving you a certain way and the free world that we live in, he says, but that means that 70% have chosen to follow our Chinuch. So he says, when the datilomi world loves to hit hit themselves over the back, that there are 30% 30 who are defecting, so to speak. He says, well, 70% are staying. And in a world as we live in, that's not a small achievement. So first of all, that's, interesting. Uh, that's, an interesting, that's an interesting perspective. My experience with Kirov is, it's not clear to me that they want it. I know that I have a, some very close friends whose daughter stopped keeping Shabbat. And I'm sort of close with uh, the kids and the family. And they asked me to have a conversation with her when she stopped keeping Shabbat. She had no interest whatsoever. Uh, you know, she said, like, I'm, a, I'm an adult. I've already served three years in the army. I know who I am. I spent two years in Midrashah. If I don't want to keep Shabbat, it's for my own reasons, and you know sort of leave me alone. And I'm just coming to very softly, um, I find that our children expect us to to accept their their life choices, not to challenge them. And I do think that you know, if you're talking about Kirov, I think in general, the religious Zionist high schools put a lot of work into this. They try and do a lot of programs to to what we might call Kirov. It's interesting that a lot of the people who do find their way back in some way, find their way back through a religion which is quite different to their parents' religion. So it might be in a Beit Chabad somewhere in Kathmandu, or it might be through, you know, they grew up in a sort of very rationalistic home and they might find it through Pasidut, um, or it might be through Chabad, or it's very eclectic. So I think that rabbis do have to come along with a lot of availability and a lot of warmth. I live in al Shvut. My Arav Rav Yossi Raman, Rav Yossi Raman, he's amazing at it. He's constantly, you know, making himself available to people. I remember once I had a meeting with him. He could only meet with me at 10.30 at night in his study in the shul. And we're in the middle of a meeting. It's 11.15 at night and there's a knock on the door and it's a teenager. And he walked out of the meeting. He was there for 20 minutes. He said to me, he walked back in. There were four of us in the meeting. He said, if a teenager knocks on my door at 11.15, I talked to him for as long as this needed, but you know what I was amazed at that teenagers knew they could knock on his door at 1115 at night and they went looking for him at 1115 at night. And for people, I know that's a tall order for a rabbi or for, a, but in Israel, I find it amazing. I mean, I've got a daughter who's 24 years old. She'll still on Shabbos afternoon, sometimes go for a walk with with her, I don't know how you translate that in English. Her her class homeroom teacher, which she had when she was in ninth and tenth grade, she's still a religious role model for her, and they talk about life and meaning and everything else, and you know it's a matter of keeping doors open, and I think I think that's really the
1: that's amazing. What I can say that's 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 really amazing. It's a beautiful thing. To me, a big part of it, at least from my observation, is that religious role model can remain that religious role model, even if that religious role model wants the person to be a religious Jew, if they don't come with some artifice where they're pretending to be their friend because they have some secret agenda to make them more religious, to bring them along without being open about it. If, on the other hand, that religious role model will say, of course I want you to be a from Jew, but I also want to talk to you and I can speak to you with respect and friendship without it being about, are you going to put on in tomorrow morning? There are many people out there with whom I disagree about this issue or another issue, but that doesn't mean that every time I talk to them, all I'm really trying to do is to convince them that I'm right. There's such a thing as talking to people because you care about them, even when you disagree. There shouldn't be any hidden secrets or any hidden goal going on there. I think that's a very important part as well. Right. I would agree with you. I want to ask about something which we alluded to before, and I also spoke about again in that episode with Rabbi Sommer about dogma, you know, nowadays we talk about dogma, it seems that, from what I've read, Professor Menachem Kellner talks about this, he's from the University of Haifa, that our emphasis on dogma today is far stronger than it was several hundred years ago, and several hundred years ago is far stronger than it was in the time of Chazal, at least that's what he argues. And nowadays, on the one hand, the 13 principles, for example, those articulated by the Rambam, they've become the assumed standard theology in Orthodox Judaism. On the other hand, people who cannot or cannot or will not accept them as expressed by the Rambam, and of course the Rambam's understanding of these 13 principles might be considered somewhat extreme in certain ways, but people who can't accept them might feel disenfranchised. So in other words... The idea of heresy might be pushing people away because they say, well, I can't accept everything that, using this example, the 13 principles assert, therefore there's no reason for me to be religious. I've wondered if our emphasis on dogma sometimes might be actually counterproductive. Maybe we should try to reinvigorate the experience of God, the experience of Torah, what I called in my last episode, faith in rather than belief that, to quote Rabbi Norman Lamzatzal. Do you think that's possible that dogma might be, without rejecting dogma, that's not what I mean, but we should perhaps put a little bit lower on the totem pole of values rather than push it up to the top?
0: I can only talk from my kid's experience. I didn't find that whole dogma played a particularly central role. Um, You know, I feel like in the religious Zionist Shivot there's a lot more feeling, there's a lot more, you know, I love HaKadosh Baruch Hu. <laughs> there's a lot more a lot more emphasis on on love than y- era, a lot more emphasis on opportunities than boundaries so to my mind i, I don't really see that so much as a factor uh, having said that you know and, and i do think that maybe lifestyle choices are far more powerful in this area but but since you've raised it let me let me maybe make a couple of comments in this regard one is the fact that um i do think some people are looking for boundaries I think some kids really do love those 13 principles of faith. They give them an anchor, they give them a mooring, they give them clear boundaries. And, you know, if I related before to a situation in which some people are actually moving to the right, maybe some students actually do want those, those clear boundaries and, and they want that. Let me say a couple of things about, about the Israeli situation, which, of course, I'm more, um, I'm more familiar with. First of all, like uh, something happened this week, which we should comment been in, in this regard. There is a religious uh, journalist, Yair Sharkey. His father is a Ram in Machon Meir. Comes from a religious Zionist family, a Rav Cook family, and um, he wrote a post this week um, that he was coming out the closet, and he came out. and said, you know, I love Hakadosh Baruch a- Avalani Gamohev Banim. I also like guys and. I've accepted who I am. I'm going to remain from, I'm going to remain as religious as before. And uh, I want, you know, I'm, I'm 30 years old and it's enough of being in the closet and I want this to come out. And the outpouring of love from politicians, from Amcha, from, and from many, many liberal rabbis was, I mean, liberal, I don't, I mean, orthodox liberal rabbis was, he had an overwhelming, overwhelming explosion of love. Um, as well within the religious, what we might call the modern Orthodox community. What this tells me is that here in Israel, the boundaries aren't so rigid. I find in a lot of places, you know, there is a war on some of the more cardali elements against any sort of LGBT identity. But there's also a lot of openness in the more open side of uh, the religious world. If you take the main journal, the main newspaper, Makorishon. There's a whole segment of Makorishon which is is called Motzei Shabbat. It's the culture section. But one of the columnists there, along with Chaimin Avon, and along with Yemima Mizrahi, is somebody Ya'ir Agmon, who himself is a Datlash, and talks about his about his escapades as a Datlash. They review books and movies which are far from standards of halacha, and 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 in fact, the Chardalim really hates out of all of Makorishon they they. Some of them hide away the Motzei Shabbat section because they feel it's sort of decadent and, you know, never mind the restaurant reviews and, and, and all of that and the sports section. So it, it's interesting that I think there is a lot of openness here, and this applies even to areas of the Yud Karim. If you take biblical criticism, right, the the tolerance for that within orthodox circles here in Israel is, is, is immense because you've got people going to Bible departments who've already spent 12 years in yeshiva and somehow they find a way to sort of reconcile their understanding of biblical scholarship along with their frumkeit, and they really are genuinely from and yet at the same time somehow find a way to balance that for example here the partnership minyan question, you go south to Jerusalem, there are people who go to partnership minyanim but they still consider themselves, they're not in a separate machane, they're not in a separate camp, they're part of the you know, their their brother might be, uh, you know, part of a more right wing yeshiva, and, and there's no, I don't know, choveh Torah, why you split that I that I'm identifying here. Now, you could say there is a split between Haramor and Gush and Merkas, right? For Har Hamar and Merkaz, and then, but that's already deep deep in the Torah well. <laughs> um, but right. but on those sort of like, you know, I think we share a lot in common. So I actually find that in the Israeli scene. The, the theological boundaries actually I mean by my experience don't play such a, a, a huge role but I, I'll maybe relate to one thing in uh, Rabbi Eli Ofran's book just to, I, since I mentioned it a couple of times let me just mention who he is Rabbi Eli Ofran is the Rav of Kibbutz Yavne he also runs a machina for boys in Kibbutz Beirut Iskot called Ruach Hasadeh a pre-army academy a religious pre-army academy he's also a trained psychologist and works in the religious community, you know, with a lot of uh, psychological issues, including sexual abuse and and what have you. And if you want another bit of Yichas, he's also Yishai Olevich's grandson. So um, you know that's a, you know a nice a nice bio for him. And he's just a very insightful. It's worthwhile following on on social media and worthwhile reading his book. In his book, he he says something really fascinating. He says that the Israeli community is built on, on the footstool of Rav Kook. And for Rav Kook, and he connects this also to Freud, but I'm not a psychologist, so I won't quite go there. He says he says for Rav Kook, everything was about harmony. And the, the, the worst thing you could have was things sort of without harmony. And he said that maybe in our world, our postmodernist world, we need to embrace the sort of Soloveitchikian model, the dialectic, the acceptance that sometimes certain things are truths which aren't concordant, truths which are both true, but they don't have the harmonious, you know, line between them. And he he seemed to feel that this was maybe a sort of Torah that needed to have, uh, you know, more currency in the Israeli scene. And I would argue that, you know, outside the Talmud of Yeshiva Haaretzion, Ras isn't well enough known in the broad religious Zionist world. And this sort of aspiration for harmony and for everything fitting in, for everything being, you know, beautiful and, and is, is maybe, you know, has its problematic aspects. And maybe not in the area of the Yudgimal Ikarim but maybe in a sense of a sensibility that we can live with discord, we can live with the tension, we can live with the dialectic, which was so championed. And for me, as a Talmud of the Gush is is, is almost like automatic. It's like in my blood, um, I think for other people it's very disturbing to have that dissonance. And he was sort of preaching that we need to amplify that more in the Israeli reality.
1: I think that's so true, Rabbi Israel. Rav Salveitchik, in his book, The Halachic Mind, when he talks about cognitive pluralism, to me, is, I don't hear many people discussing that aspect of Rav Salveitchik's thought. They talk about how he dealt with dialectic, but the idea of cognitive pluralism as a positive reality that exists in the world, as opposed to trying to harmonize everything. There can be multiple truths that are all part of the heavenly truth. Raph Sachs put it differently when he said, in heaven there's truth, on earth there are truths. On some level, I think that echoes the concept of cognitive pluralism. And here is a sentence that reflects what Raf Salveshek felt about that. This is a quote from the halachic mind. The white light of divinity is always refracted through reality's dome of many colored glass. And this means two things. It means, first of all, that we can only perceive God from the perspective of our physical reality. We can't get out of it and understand what he is in himself. It's always in relationship to our reality. And secondly, relating to this point, there are many different ways of relating to God through that reality that are perhaps even at times contradictory, but they're all true at the same time because they reflect that single white light of divinity refracted through multicolored glass. And I certainly agree. Bring that in to our world is an absolute necessity the way things are now. I'd like to take it a little bit further and talk about how families who have a child who is no longer religious, should navigate it. There are different questions I could ask. Let me give one example. How would a family deal with the fact, in your opinion, that if a child is no longer religious, that child might be creating an avirah, an atmosphere, that goes against the family culture? Let's say, for example, that child is no longer keeping Shabbat. On the one hand, parents certainly want that child to know he is loved or she is loved every bit as much as before. That child is 100% a part of the family that isn't changing. On the other hand, a family has a family culture that they want to preserve for themselves and for their other children. How is that navigated? Yeah,
0: this is this is a a very difficult a very difficult I think challenging issue. Um and it's it's not easy to do at all when one member of the family decides you know not to be religious how exactly do you deal with this since we're we are who we are you know i have uh, four children who i love uh, like crazy and respect deeply and they're all in very different places on the religious spectrum from dati to less dati let's call it that way um, and uh and 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 still very much on a journey each of them still in flux and maybe i'm also in flux right <laughs> let me say that and I don't have any, I don't want to talk about my children. I hesitate to, sh- to share any details. But for me, I will definitely say that it's been quite a journey. I sometimes, uh, moments of pain, but also a beautiful spiritual, a very beautiful journey for me. And, I, and I'll say this, the family I grew up in, my sisters and I, um, are pretty much in line with my parents. Parents active in the community, modern Orthodox, from also my grandparents and because we're very very similar to my parents somehow i didn't quite expect this curveball of my children being in slightly different places than i um, you know when my my daughter decided to go to i mean again let's let's talk about spectrum my daughter decided to go to a midrashah which was like a ssecd midrashah and i'm like spent spent 8 years in 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 yeshiva Haratzion. it was like you know what what are going to do with this what are we going to talk about i'm joking. talk about
1: but. off the derech you know
0: <laughs> <laughs> talk about off the derech that you know um you know, and uh, and and she indeed she loves the Kaddish very, very deeply. Now, by the way, that was a really stupid assumption of mine that my kids would grow up exactly like me because I grew up in London in a religious community, but in a broader London, uh, they grew up in Yeshuv. <laughs> uh, I grew up in Chutzla, right? so They grew up in Israel. I grew up in the 70s. They grew up in the zeros. Uh, I didn't grow up with an Intifada and a Hidmat Kut. Uh, what exactly was I thinking? That it emerged just like me there? You know, I grew up as third generation British. They grew up as immigrants. So first of all, let's put that on the table that that we have to accept that our children, especially for us Olim, are growing up in a very, very different, different world than us. And that reflects to all all different things, you know, schooling in general. I remember when we we got to what was it, tenth grade in our son's our eldest son's yeshiva high school. And we go to the parents' evening. We're all waiting for the grades and the academic achievements. And the Ram gets up. He says, grades later. He says, you should just understand in the next few months, your kids are going to start becoming madrachim in Bnei Akiva and in Ezra and whatever it is. And you've got to encourage them to be madrachim. It's the best thing for them. Now, you've got to understand if they become madrachim, it's going to blow their schooling for the next year and a half. And that's great. And we're like, (laughs) my wife, what did you say? And they're going to drop by two or three you know, grades, like by 20 percentage points. Don't worry. It's okay. They'll learn more from being madrigal. And we're like, oh, oh, is this school? And you know what? He was right. He was 100% right. Not everything is schooling. And or remember also because we have- I grew up in people.
1: Boston where academic achievement is a very, very high value. <laughs> so that's a surprising statement for someone like me.
0: So all I'll say is that was the value of a very, very serious academic issue of high school. So so we come back to the question of having a kid in your family who's decided not to be observant of what you do, what's the effect on the home environment? What's the effect on the other children in the family? What does it do to the to the fabric of the family? And and this is, you know, a real problem. And I can understand how parents who experience this, first of all, I think the first stages that I've spoken to lots of people about this, you experience a sense of maybe shock disappointment, blame, guilt. You blame yourselves. What did we do wrong? Um, Am I a good parent? Is it because of me? Is it because we're sent them to school? Is it because of their friends? So first of all, I'm not sure any of that is particularly productive, Um, but it's it's natural that, you know, people go through this because we expected our kids to turn out like us. Now, by the way, I, I assume that anybody who has kids do something radical, that is the response. But and, and then, of course, the question is going to be how open is the kid? You know, sometimes kids really are like a bat out of hell and they are very rebellious. And it's not just a question of whether they're keeping Shabbat, they're smoking or they're doing drugs or has got mental health problems or they're, you know. It, in other words, one can't just talk about this in, a, in a, you know, what's the package? What's going on? If you had a kid who was very respectful, then you can talk to them about it. And let's say the kid doesn't want to keep Shabbat. You also want them to respect the the public space and the fact that you're, if you're in our house, what you do when you're by yourself, if you're in our house, well, is it okay? Because now I think a lot of what I've seen from a lot of my friends' kids who aren't religious, their kids don't want to hurt their parents. <laughs> and the kids, when they come home, they will take part in Shabbat meals and they will sing zmirot and they want to because... That's what it means to be in our parents' homes. If that is the case, then that's absolutely great. I I think the way for parents to deal with it is with with a lot of love and acceptance, but also to open a conversation where it needs to be, be opened. I have to say that, you know, sometimes there are very acrimonious relationships. I was talking to somebody recently and they told me that their daughter had said to them, you don't really want me in the family anymore. I don't belong. It turns out that one of the parents says, you have to wear a skirt at home on Shabbat. And I want you to come to shul. Now they say, that's the culture of our house. That's our home. Now, what's that doing is that's making that child not want to come home. And the child doesn't come home anymore, certainly not during Shabbat. You have to ask yourself whether that's worth it. I had another child, another family who told me but their son is irreligious, and when he's at home, he's, you wouldn't know he wasn't being Shomer Shabbat. He wears a white shirt and a, puts on a kippah at the meals. What he does in his own room is in his own business. And he turned around to his parents and said to them, I'm feeling cooped up over Shabbat. I live, we live in Yeshuv and I'm cooped up, and I'm not really coming to come home very much for Shabbos anymore. And they turned around to him and said, you know, would it be helpful if we left the car outside Yeshuv and you used our car on Shabbat? And went out with friends on Friday night after the meal or spent Shabbat morning with your friends. And he was shocked. The kid was shocked that the parents were willing to do that. And they made the calculation that we want our child still to be at our Shabbos table. What's the choice? If he doesn't come over Shabbos, he'll have no Shabbos. But if he's with us, even for a part of Shabbos, he'll have some Shabbos. Now, this is a remarkable shift, which I've seen even in my own. I've lived in Alon anshuot for over 30 years. We don't have cars in our Lon But when I was first in the Shav, there were no cars outside the Now there is an entire parking lot outside the Shav, anything between 10 and 15, 20, 30 cars, which uh, are parked there because parents want their kids to be able to, and maybe sometimes their grandchildren, right? Let's say the kids aren't religious, but now their grandchildren sit in a sukkah. Their grandparents, the grandchildren can feel Shabbos in their house. And they can have a care- they want the whole family together, religious or non-religious. I have a cousin who's not, who's not shomer, shomer Shabbat. she doesn't live near us and uh, for years we, we I mean and I very much I love her and I accept the fact that she's not religiously observant anymore. but once we were in a family simcha and she made a comment like she said, I don't I don't get to see the family very much because like nobody will invite me for Shabbos, because they'll know I'll drive there." And we did invite her once to stay over for Shabbat, but we could see it was her with her kids and it was too much for them. And it was uncomfortable for them. and They're not used to being in a religious environment. My wife and I had a conversation. I know the halachas pretty well about this. And, um, and I even actually heard an interesting story that despite Ramosha's tshuva on the matter, Ramosha actually said that it's perfectly allowed to invite people for a meal on Shabbats in this situation. And we decided to invite her. And uh, she, we arranged that she would come and park outside the Yeshiva Shabbat. We'd meet her, and they came like for three hours of Shabbat's lunch, and we played with her kids, and they had a great time with us, and we had a great time with them. I'm not doing it for cure of reasons. I'm not thinking that her children are going to become religious. I just want to catch up with her. She's my cousin, right? I just wanted to feel like people care about her. On a, on a you want a, you want me to turn that into mitzvahs? I'll call it by Hafterecha I'll talk, call it. I don't know you understand what I'm saying, like it's just basically Derek eretz and decency and 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 all of that. So, having said all of that, it's challenging, right? I have a friend of mine who said that they won't let her daughter and his and their boyfriend uh, sleep in the same room, even though they share an apartment, because there's the little the younger daughter, right? And she doesn't want the younger daughter to see her older daughter, who's not married, sharing a room now. Again, does that become fight or does that become an agreed upon? So you can try and make rules. The question is how they're responded to. Right? The question is how the rules go down, whether the child's open to them or whether they're not open to them.
1: And what you're paying for them, what the price of any given rule is going to be in the long term. Now, Again, as I say, sometimes you can have very aggressive children who've got very aggressive
0: anti-side to them. And then all the conversations in the world don't, you know, don't work. They say, you don't respect me. Maybe people have made mistakes in the past. You know, my attitude has always been, maybe I've made mistakes. But from now, from this point on, I want to be the best parent I can to my children. I don't know whether I've made mistakes or successes, but whatever I've done at this moment forth, let me try and be be the best that I can to to my children.
1: It's it back to that idea of not being binary. It's not yes or no. There is a huge right. red set that's in the middle about that.
0: You know, I... I told you that there's some some parents once asked me to talk to their child and convince them to keep Shabbat. So this child didn't keep Shabbat, and this child started going out with a child. She's a young woman. Uh, started going out with somebody completely irreligious, and eventually they decided to get married. And they asked me to do the wedding, and uh, I was the raf for the wedding. Now they came along with a lot of demands, mostly to do with the egalitarian side of things, and I really tried to be sympathetic to it and try to find every heter I could. Because I wanted them to really enjoy their wedding. <laughs> I wanted them to feel their wedding reflected their values. And when I spoke onto the chuppah, I spoke about how much they taught me. How much they taught me about their passion for egalitarianism and their passion for tzedek and their passion for religion to be meaningful to them. I'm interested in it. They're not religious, but they wanted if they're going to do a religious ceremony, it better reflect me in some way. And it pained them that their religious ceremony they were going to get married under would not reflect their values. In other words, I respect them. I respect them as human beings. And it made a deep impression. I know not only they told me, not only did they enjoy their chuppah, but their piloni friends and most of their friends that were not religious were bowled over that a rabbi would talk in that way that a rabbi would say, you've given me a lesson in Sedek. You've given me a lesson in the meaning of religion. And I, I, wasn't, I wasn't making it up. I was really genuine because they were so passionate. They were a little feisty, but it showed a deep sense of caring. And that's the question. Can you see the cup half full? Can you look and say, wow, you know, this is reflective of something powerful. And it's a powerful instinct. It's an instinct that Judaism believes in maybe it's not manifest in this halacha. I mean, it's one of the things that really I find very difficult. I am a person who subscribes to fe- feminist values, and the the kiddushin is so one way. It's very much, it's jarring, and I've spoken to plenty of rabbanim about this, and it's it, it's sort of difficult. Obviously, I'm completely loyal to the halacha, as we have it in the shulchanarach, et cetera, and yet I always feel there's a sort of, talking about a dissonance, there's a dissonance between my value system and 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 the ceremony. So, the question is also like whether you can, whether you can respect somebody who, you know, we spoke about the the spectrum. So they're not observant of they don't put on their tefillin they don't go to shul. But there's another seventy thousand things that you can respect for. And yeah, you know, let's 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 embrace that. So I think there's something you know which is really really important about that.
1: That is such a beautiful idea and I think so important. Rabbi Israel, I want to ask one last question on the topic of families and parents, because even as parents accept their children, even as parents want to be the full loving parents and invite their children in in all the ways that you just said, it has to be jarring for some parents to experience that dissonance, that their hopes for their children are dashed on some level, that they were expecting, as you said, their child to follow in their footsteps. And whether that was a good expectation or a misplaced expectation, nevertheless, to see children rejecting what you consider your most deeply held values, the things that matter most to you, can sometimes feel like a personal rejection. So could you give some advice to people who feel rejected? They feel that my child isn't rejecting religion so much as they're rejecting me and the things that I care about. What would you say to a person who feels that way?
0: So first of all, some of it might be some of it might be real, some of it might be ego. <laughs> what would I say? I would say, first of all, find people to talk to. Maybe even go and, you know, spend a few sessions with a therapist. It can be a religious therapist, it can be a non-religious therapist. Uh have a chance to talk these things out so that things when you actually do talk about it with your children, it doesn't come out in aggressive or toxic ways. Maybe if you don't like to go to therapists, that you can find enough friends to talk to who are wise and sympathetic and talk these things out. But I, I definitely do think some people find it easier to to write to write their thoughts. So there are all sorts of ways that a person can process their feelings. Um, I also think it's very important for spouses, you know, to to discuss this together. They don't need to agree, but to share how they each feel. Again, I repeat, it can be something very, very, very painful. And you don't need to deny the pain. Rav Aviner once wrote an article about this, and he said, wait, you know, you're not alone. Um, Think about Avram. Avram had Yishmael. Think about Yitzhak. Yitzhak and Esav. Yaakov had sons who wanted to kill their brother. So that's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is to say, okay, he's not religious, but Baruch Hashem, he's healthy. He finished his Bagriyot. He has no mental health problems. He's made it through the army. Bariva Shalem. So that's another way. I once said to somebody that I, sometimes when I think about my kids who are in a different religious place than me, I, you know, we have this concept in Judaism of the Halakta Bidrachav. It's just like Hashem is merciful, we should be merciful, just like Hashem is, plants trees, we should plant trees. So I said, you know, just like Hashem had a lot of hopes for Am Yisrael, and we kept on frustrating him, you know, we kept on sinning, we, in the Midbar, and in Eretz Yisrael, and then invite Rishon, and then invite Shani, and Lord knows after the emancipation, and look around you, and you know what? Hashem never gives up on us. So, bidracham. <laughs> I'm not going to give up on my kids. And Hashem always treats us in love. And I think this is actually a very deep point, which I thought about over Yom Kippur one year. Because think about Yom Kippur, we all have this experience, right? We go into Yom Kippur and we say, we're going to be better and we're going to do tshuva. And a lot of times we find ourselves committing the same mistakes in the next year. Do you know what Hashem does the next year? He invites us in again to try again a certain tshuva and you know what? I've got a feeling he knows that next year we're going to do the same thing. And he just, you know, he just loves us. He just says that I am going to Mikveh Yisrael Hashem. Ma, you know, Ma Akadish Yisrael. is always there for us with his arms wide open, even though we've disappointed him. We've hurt him. Maybe Maybe we've got to take company with Akadosh Baruch Hu. I know that's maybe like maybe a little audacious theologically but i really think that that our children they even if they reject our way they want our love uh they want our love i find time and time again that children who've chosen a different way still respect their parents way they're just their parents way is not for them and um that doesn't mean that they think you're an idiot that doesn't mean that you, they say
1: this doesn't work for me i also want to add just one point which is i think also back to that that reseftati, that spectrum, someone who decides to become, quote-unquote, not religious, isn't necessarily, despite what we initially see, rejecting their parents' values. The household can be a household of chesed. The household can be a household of love. The household can be a household where you're told to respect each other. Just because they might reject the idea of tzitzit or tefillin or tzniut or whatever particular value is there, that doesn't mean they're rejecting all of your Torah values, as you said earlier.
0: Right. And they might be actually, as you say, accepting other values. You know, I, two, two of my boys decided to go to Dati Chiloni Michinot. And I had sort of wanted them to go to Yeshiva there like I had. And I sort of was a bit disappointed. You know, I thought, you know, they didn't get the same immersive experience in Torah that I had. And instead they went to a Dati environment. And then I, <laughs> I said to myself, oh my gosh, you know where they got it from? They got it from me. I, I talk a lot about Dati coexistence, but I don't really do it. They took my the values I've spoken about their whole lives, and they did it. So there we go. <laughs> what do you want? What do you want? And 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 the, for both of them, this has been the most wonderful, wonderful growth experience. It's exactly what they needed, and they're not me. I want to tell you an extreme story, but it's true about parenting as well. When I was a Kolelnik in in, in yeshiva, I had one of my old chachim from B'nai Akiva in England came to yeshiva and asked me for a chavuta. So I said, "Sure, alone with him now." I guess my hope somewhere, which I wasn't even aware of, was that he would become sort of a serious yeshiva bacha like me. As the year went by, this guy wasn't becoming serious at all. He was a happy-go-lucky, jokey guy. He loved learning with me, but he... Now, have no fear, this guy is from today. He's even the gabba of his community. He made aliyah. He's a perfect balabos. Wonderful. But I found myself at a certain point in the year saying to myself, it's getting angry. Why am I wasting my time with this guy? He's not becoming a heavy, miserable yeshiva bacha like me. And at some point, me, I took a hold of myself. I said, are you nuts? You want to make a clone? You want to him to be just like you? Let him be him. It's true about our kids as well. Our kids do have our DNA, so we more want them to be, you know, and I think there are philosophers and Freud certainly has spoken about, you know, this difficulty with having those offspring of ours you know, have the, the audacity and, and chutzpah to actually do things differently than ourselves. Clearly, by the way, selam alokim, you know, in nature, selam alokim, evolution is is this sense of diversity, right? It's this sense of divergence. I have a feeling that it's true. It's true also in terms of human experience, because if you take a place like Alon Shavut, where you put about 200 gushnikim into a yeshuv, who all wear white shirts on Shabbat and more or less the same kippot, and then you see the range that their kids are, Clearly, HaKadosh Baruch Hu thinks that, you know, but <laughs> Al-Kim means, like it says in the Mishnah Sanhedrin, that even though he puts everybody in the same mint, they all come out different. They all come out differently. How crazy that is, but that's the reality. And I even think it's the Rosh Hashem at some level. I, I will definitely say that. I will just give our, our, our listeners one thing to to watch when you talk about, there's an amazing show on Israeli TV called Odd Nipagesh. Ondi Pagesh is a is a show where you've got various people who have religious, on the religious secular, people who, who are secular and are looking for their, let's say their brother became Haredi. They want contact with their Haredi brother. Or you had a couple, of three mothers whose children had stopped being observant and they had a fight and they'd actually left. The, they weren't phoning home. They weren't coming home. And the mothers are literally looking for their children. The second series was unbelievable. I literally spent all eight episodes in tears um, just watching this because it was so emotional. Um, and you see these these different people really trying to bridge the gap and to get their relatives to understand that even though they're in a very different place, they should be accepting to them. And one of the most painful moments was that there was one guy who had grown up Haredi, had become Chiloni, and he wanted a connection with his sister. And his sister was married to somebody from the Pelago Ushalmi, the very, 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 very Haredi, and he, he's not allowed to meet his sister. And eventually, he speaks to his brother-in-law, asking his brother-in-law, can I meet my sister? I miss her so much. And, I mean, this is a guy who's 30 years old, and his sister's 25, or the other way around, and uh, his extremely you know, Haredi brother-in-law, this was their only failed story, but they didn't end up hugging and kissing, and said uh, to him, you know, you know, you know Torah, you know Akadosh Baruch Hu, you've rejected it. You have no right to be alive. If you want to meet your sister, if you're Chazer I'll be the first one to welcome you to my house. But until then, that guy, I can't even tell you on social media how many messages he got. I could see on his Facebook page, right? Thousands of messages from Haredim saying that what that guy did was a Chil Hashem. And how can he reject? And how can he reject you and not give you a chance to see your sister? And I don't think there's anything more painful than rejection, and especially rejection by a parent. And uh, therefore, I would encourage any parents, your question was, you know, what should parents do with the pain? We have to find a way to get over it, whether it's through therapy, whether it's through talking to people, we have to try and maximally find, okay, of course, if the child, for whatever reason, is insulting, is abusive, then one doesn't need to put oneself through it if they're causing trouble for the other kids in the family, I can understand. But as much, even then, there are ways to show your love maybe outside the home environment, not on Shabbos, etc., etc. Still, I think it's really imperative that people try their hardest and use whatever tools at our disposal. And we have a lot of, thank God today, therapeutic tools in order to help ourselves be able to come closer to children who are in a place which is very different from our own. And I think they will be better off and we will be better off if we manage to to restore that connection. So I think it's a really, really critical thing to do.
1: What a beautiful sentiment. And personally, just from this conversation, just from what you said now, I'm taking home that idea of the the ethical obligation to follow in God's ways means to love people even if they don't do what we expect them to do. And that other point that you made, quoting the Mishnah and Sanhedrin, that we might, mint coins and they all come out the same, but God mints coins and they all come out different. And perhaps the differences, even as they're painful for us, they somehow represent the will of God, the Ratzon Hashem. And being able to accept that and to understand it, even as we don't necessarily like it, can be a way that can help us towards a sort of comfort and hum, I think. Indeed. Rabbi Alex Israel, this was so wonderful. And I'm so pleased you came on and spoke about this difficult but very, very important topic. And I hope to have you back on the podcast again soon because... I really was enriched by this. Thank you very much for joining me today.
0: So, with all of your wonderful work, uh, bringing discussions to Am Israel. Thank you so much.
1: Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit JewishCoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamananis Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like The Orthodox Conundrum Podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, The Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in Orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more you'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers. And you'll be helping Jewish Coffee House spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop any time, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. on JewishCoffeehouse.com.